CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Happy Monday. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV and listening to us on The Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jensen Assey, Zach Seward, and Will Foxley are joining me today. Zach, you got the first story. What is it? do. It's about Coinbase. Coinbase beefing with the SEC. Remember that story? All right. Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, walks back a little bit of the we're taking our ball and going home vibes that had previously been channeled, but still poking some shots at SEC and Chairman Gary Gensler. Now the SEC still has to respond to the latest from Coinbase as mandated by a judge. So we're waiting on that any old day now. But yeah, Brian Armstrong still poking at the bear that is the SEC and Gary Gensler, but also toning it down a little bit. So not full out war of words. We're leaving the US. We'll see what happens. But I don't know. Suggest something about the whole story for sure. So I'm going to toss it to Will. What do you think? I guess I'm a Brian Armstrong whisperer because I called this. I said it was posturing last time, right? Like, and it totally was. All this was posturing. Coinbase has probably invested more in US infrastructure, meaning licensing in the regime of the SEC and other uh, regulators than any other crypto company out there, right? They're the first company to really go public for crypto, minus a bunch of other Bitcoin mining companies, which will kind of like waft off to the side. That was a monumental moment for crypto in April 2021 when Coinbase did go public. And they do have a lot of these other licenses, which Coindesk has covered uh, ad nauseum in a lot of different articles talking about all the different licenses they need to be able to function as an exchange, as a custodian, as sort of like a neobank within the US. So no, they were not ever going to leave the US but that doesn't mean they can't be opportunistic and set up like a side entity and move offshores. And that's what we're doing right now with this Bermuda thing, right? They're opening up this Bermuda derivatives exchange at the moment. And uh, they're going to be able to take in a lot of revenue that way and sort of diversify themselves and also sort of take advantage of this regulatory arbitrage that we've seen Binance do for quite some time, right? Coinbase has issued away from that for good reason. Didn't really make sense at the time. They tried to stay in line and be good. The SEC seemed like it was playing ball. Then they weren't all of a sudden, so Coinbase had to pivot. And now they sort of have two business lines. Like they have a US business line with Coinbase and they have like this offshore one, which they're going to build with derivatives. Both are going to be lucrative. So I'm not feeling bad for Brian right now. I am happy that they're leading the charge in this. I would say they're also not alone. There are some other crypto companies that are going after the SEC. Jen, I'll throw it over to you. 
Yeah, I think when we look at Brian's comments, we have to think about the stakeholders here, right? And I immediately think about the customers and the shareholders. I don't have exact numbers in front of me, but I've read multiple publications that the majority of Coinbase's customers are in the US, right? And so for Brian Armstrong, for Coinbase to be out there saying, we're looking at going overseas, we may be looking at not staying in the US because of regulatory uncertainty, I think makes customers afraid and it makes shareholders afraid. And so I think this totally makes sense when we look at all of the stakeholders in Coinbase's ecosystem and where Coinbase is currently getting their revenue from. So this makes sense. The other side of this story, you know, I think that Brian Armstrong and Coinbase being at the head of this fight for regulatory clarity in the U.S., is honestly like a marketing campaign in the making. Last year, we spoke so much about exchanges gaining trust. And we saw that kind of blow up in everyone's face at the end of last year. But if Coinbase is able to get regulatory clarity and be very public about it right now, I think they're going to win over the next generation of crypto users when it comes to trust. They're going to be able to say, you know, we led this charge, we got clarity. And at the end of the day, you guys are who's important to us. So that's what I took away from this, Zach. Yeah, there's no one else really in the US, right? It's their game to lose. And I think Coinbase has invested heavily in the US, has always been, hey, we're US-based, we want to comply with regulators. It's just that the regulators haven't really uh, followed suit, right? They've been asking for this clarity for years. Uh, They've failed to respond to a petition, all this stuff, right? But I think in the long term, the investment in the US market will likely pay off for Coinbase and likely they see that as well, right? So when Brian Armstrong previously was like, hey, we're leaving, and then today he's like, no, we're not. Of course, that makes sense. And shout out to Will for calling it. But yeah, they're going to have to go elsewhere to get some of these more attractive business opportunities in front of them. And that's what we've seen with this Bermuda thing and this derivatives exchange thing. They can reach a more degenerate audience of people who want that 5X, right? Want those, want those options to be able to trade through Coinbase. So we might see more of that, more dabbling in the things that can only be offered offshore while also retaining a strong footprint in the US because it's their game to lose, right? Binance US is floundering relative to Coinbase. The others out there aren't as strong, aren't as widely known, aren't on TV, to be honest, talking about why the existing system is kind of janky, right? So I think Coinbase sees that its long-term prospects are best suited in the US. They're going to try to advance this narrative. The SEC is an impediment to that, but they're not going to pull up stakes and head elsewhere. They're in a tough spot messaging-wise, and I think that's why we're seeing sort of the backpedaling a little bit in these most recent statements. But I don't know. There will certainly be more. Very much looking to see what the SEC says in its response to Coinbase's petition. All right, I'm throwing it to Will. What's up? You got the next story. Next story. Okay, let's go over to Bitcoin land. We're going to talk about ordinals once again. Ordinals, inscriptions, all this Bitcoin NFT mania is causing a ruckus on the Bitcoin blockchain with fees spiking over 100% of the block reward, actually, for one of the first times in Bitcoin's history, leading to a bonanza of Bitcoin mining fees for Bitcoin miners. And then also a lot of fun for you know people who like stuff on Bitcoin, you like NFTs. This is a really awesome story just showing that yeah, there's more in Bitcoin than people uh, really give it credit for. One thing I gotta say first, I gotta shill the hash a little bit. We've been all over the story since the beginning. So, you know, if you're watching us daily, you are setting up at the times pretty well. Jen, I want to throw this one over to you. You are our NFT expert, if we can give you that title, as well as our chief legal officer. So What's your titles. take on all this? So many it's titles. So many titles. The article said that some analysts consider the rapid transactional activity as a sign of network adoption, which adds to Bitcoin's fundamental narrative. I am agreeing with these analysts. And I keep thinking back to the time where, Will, you and Zach were live from East Denver and you said, 
that all of these people who are new to the space were learning about the space through NFTs and meme coins. And now we have NFTs and meme coins on Bitcoin. And so I think it's just, I think it's like a great fun way for people to learn about Bitcoin and fees are going to go up if there's more activity on chain and it just presents more problems that we need to solve, but we're super early. And so I think that this is cool. And before Zach, before I kick it to you, Will, I just want to know from a mining perspective, like, are you celebrating this because miners are possibly profitable again? Oh, we've, we've been profitable. Don't, don't you worry. Yeah, disclosure, <laughs> do work for a Bitcoin mining company running media for them. And it's been bad times. Like November was probably the darkest. So a lot of miners actually went bankrupt during that period. Right now, it's awesome to be online. I have four Bitcoin miners myself, and all of them are enjoying a little fee bump. Uh, right now, one interesting anecdote, and I kind of alluded to it a second ago, is that historically, the fees component of a Bitcoin block Inside a Bitcoin block, there is a Bitcoin reward for mining Bitcoin block, and then you get the fees associated with transferring Bitcoin. Typically, Bitcoin fees are about like 1% to 2% of that reward. Right now, it makes up about 50% all the way up to 100%. And that historically has not happened very often within Bitcoin's history. And it's all because of inscriptions and ordinals. So this is like one of the best times to be a Bitcoin miner, honestly. Zach, over to you. Man, Will was gone last week and he missed shit coins on Bitcoin. Dude, this is about BRC20. This isn't about ordinals. This is the meme coins. They're that's a, that's the a Bitcoin type of blockchain. It's a type I'm inscription. It's so sad. It's so sad. I had to channel like the grumpy Bitcoiner on the show last week. Oh, no, like, did not. No, this is a yeah, bridge too far. Like, is anything sacred anymore? And now how we have meme coins on the Bitcoin blockchain and Will's all over here like, well, at least my fees are up. Philosophically speaking, this is just, this is simply too much. This is simply too much, sir, that meme coins exist on Bitcoin. I guess meme coins, you know what? It's a feature, not a bug of the crypto world. You see it with Pepe and all this stuff that's going on right now. But to see it come to Bitcoin, never did I think that we'd be here. And so all those grumpy maxis who bemoaned ordinals as opening floodgate of all this quote unquote innovation on the Bitcoin blockchain. I, yeah, I'm with them. I'm with them in spirit, Will. So I put it back to you. I know you're loving wow. those sweet, sweet fees, but I give it to you. I give it to you. Wow. Yeah, Zach's totally right. So BRC20 is basically this new minting token program that is being launched on top of Bitcoin is a subset of inscriptions and is causing this huge pump in the uh, transaction fees right now because these sort of mints on Bitcoin, if you will, take a lot of block space in order to do. And that is just jam packing these Bitcoin blocks with so many different transaction types and different transactions that it's making it really hard to use Bitcoin for like an ordinary transaction like you would have a few months ago. I mean, to pay with Bitcoin a few months ago, it was like one sat per V-byte, which is basically like pennies. Right now, we're looking at like $20 to transact on Bitcoin. So that's like a crazy multiple if you're just looking at a percent gain for the cost of transacting on Bitcoin. And this might be the way that Bitcoin is going forward, right? We saw this with Ethereum multiple times, and that's why they kind of re-engineered the layer one and they moved to rollups. Bitcoin doesn't really have that. So it's anyone's guess what happens from here. Does ordinals die off? Do BRC20s fail? And we go back to low fee environment. Or is this the new normal where like you can't really send a layer one transaction because it's too expensive and there's too many Pepe tokens taking up all the block space? Who's to know? Jen. I want a prediction from you, Will. We missed you last week. What's happening? What do you think is going to happen next? I think there's going to be some cool mints from a few projects coming up. I think uh, Yuga Labs might be instructive here. They kind of came out of nowhere in 2020, 2021. And now they're kind of a dominant force. I think there's going to be a few companies that pop up and do that on Bitcoin. I think there's going to be some interesting artwork. I think there will also be some new like roll-up-like use cases on top of Bitcoin that we don't see coming up. 
And I think we've entered a new high fee environment. Not this high. I bet it drops by like 50 to 75% from where it is right now. But I think that's going to be a little bit more costly to use Bitcoin going forward. That's my take. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Now, we're here to talk about a project we haven't heard about in a little while, but it is back and it is incorporating AI. So WorldCoin has released its first major consumer product, and it will help you prove you're human in the age of AI. WorldCoin co-founder Sam Altman is also the co-founder of OpenAI, and he's brought the two together with WorldApp. So this is WorldCoin's crypto wallet. It's built on Polygon. If you don't have a world ID, the wallet works like any other wallet, but it's stripped down. That's what Altman says. But if you do have world ID, the app is supposed to serve as some kind of digital passport, giving humans access to apps and services gated to world ID holders. World ID holders are the people who have had their retinas scanned by one of those WorldCoin orbs. So a lot to unpack here, but Zach, I know that you've been following this story and you always have a hot take when we talk about WorldCoin. So what do you got? The AI takeover makes staring into the orb for those sweet, sweet tokens a lot less scary now, doesn't it, all you WorldCoin haters out there? I'm, I'm going to look right in there, get my coins, because the AI is not taking me. It's going to know that I'm real and it's not going to be able to Sybil attack that system because it's on my retinas, y'all. So anyway, yeah, this is funny that it comes back into the, the headlines in combination with Sam Altman's arguably far more impactful creation. We see a lot of chatter on AI right now, not just in crypto, but in the world at large. So the idea that sort of WorldCoin can be in answer and in conversation with this AI stuff, I think is super interesting and was obviously underlooked in early coverage of what WorldCoin can be. Now, does that mean that you're going to want to stare into the orb and you're going to want to maybe deal with some reportedly dicey security practices around that. That's for everyone to decide on their own. But I think it's really fascinating that these two things are now in conversation with each other beyond just having a shared co-founder. Whether or not people are going to end up turning to this thing and whether or not it becomes that passport in an increasingly weird online future, obviously time's going to tell. But these two things should be seen in concert. And I think this is the first sort of smart marketing step by WorldCoin to link the two projects. But hey, it's just me. Well, what do you think? Wow, I was waiting for like the grumpy man yell at cloud. I do it all. From Zach, I do it all. I do it all. Just took a total I do it all. Yes. I broke my ankles right there. I was not ready for that. Embracing innovation. <laughs> Zach got me on skates this morning. Hey, AI, crypto. There's even AI crypto tokens at this point. We got it all for you guys. If you're watching the show, there's a lot going on out there. This project in particular, like the intersection sort of makes sense, right? They sort of rolled out WorldCoin first before we really knew what OpenAI and ChatGPT3 was going to do. And once that popped off and got so many users so quickly, faster than really any sort of app in history to date, it made sense to pair them together. Beforehand, WorldCoin was just like this very like 1984-esque New World Order sort of gadget that nobody wanted to have, look at, or be a part of. 
He got roasted on crypto Twitter endlessly and for good reason. But now the world coin, you know, shills, if you will, they're looking kind of smart, right? Because we do need some sort of like way to fix this if AI continues to start eating up uh, software the way it is, if it's able to continue to replicate human interaction so well in an increasingly digital world, you're going to need some sort of proof to be able to prove that you are in fact human. And that's why the idea of cryptographic keys, your public and your private key have sort of been a big deal. One very simplistic use case of this, for instance, is like when you're logging into a website and you use like your Google login or your Facebook login. What if we use Ethereum login instead? Well, this sort of solves the same problem, right? Like if I want to prove that I'm not an AI bot, well, maybe I just use my proof from my WorldCoin orb scan. It's a thing. Jen, over to you. I think what you're both saying is right, but it doesn't change the fact that you need to get your retinas scanned. No, I don't, I don't like how- that. Right. I ran into one of these orbs at Ethan Y. I told you, and they tried to scan my retinas and I was like, ah, running away. Um, But I want to get our audience caught up on what WorldCoin is just in case this is the first time you're hearing about it. So WorldCoin has this orb that looks like a basketball and they're going around to different areas globally to scan people's retinas and then provide them that native token to WorldCoin to kind of introduce this universal basic income idea to all kinds of different geographies. There have been a few scandals that have popped up uh, in association with WorldCoin when it comes to how they are recruiting and compensating people in different areas of the world. And now it seems like they have pivoted with their messaging to leverage the like hype around AI. So I'm curious if they're going to be able to address some of those things that came up, address some of the concerns around privacy, or if they're just going to go all in on the AI narrative moving forward. I guess we'll see. Zach? Yeah, you think of AI and like blockchain, I always thought it would be like establishing digital provenance, right? Like blockchains are really good at logging things that are digitally unique. But like human provenance may actually be an important thing that we're going to have to deal with in Mm -hmm. this AI future, right? So we've long heard about decentralized ID as being a big part of blockchain technology. None of it has really clicked just yet. But obviously, there may be a future in which establishing human provenance could be something that blockchain could ultimately solve for. And I think obviously sort of hitching a narrative wagon at least to that conversation by WorldCoin makes sense, especially given the shared founder situation. But hey, I don't know. Let's leave this one here and let's go find the orb. You guys want to stare into an orb with me one day? Mm, yes. I think we've ended every WorldCoin segment like that. Let's go Dude, find I the orb. We need to find the orb. This <laughs> so shiny orb. I'm still looking. Can't believe you turned it down, Jen. We're going to change gears. We are going to do a little bit of Coindesk turns 10. Coindesk itself is about to be a decade old, and there's all sorts of big stories that we're unpacking in that special series over at Coindesk.com slash Coindesk 10. Now, we turn to someone who used to work for Coindesk. Brady Dale used to be a senior reporter here. He's now at Axios. And now, tomorrow, officially, he will be a published author with a sweet new book called SBF, How the FTX Bankruptcy Sunk Crypto's Very Bad Good Guy. I may have botched part of that, but there it is. Check it out. Go buy it from your local bookstore tomorrow. Brady, welcome. How you doing? Hey, guys. Great to be back with the old gang. I think I was on here like three times ever, right? But it was usually you guys. So it, uh, it makes me feel nostalgic. Best shows good. ever. It's good to well, have you here. Back. Congrats on the book. It's awesome that you are the first book to market about the SBF and FTX downfall. What's like the spiciest thing that you uncovered? That's my main question, right? I know you have maybe a scoop or two in this book. What is the one thing that you felt was most revelatory in doing this reporting? 
I mean, it's in the weeds, uh, but I, if this is a crypto audience, I feel like you all will get it. So there's there's three interviews with Sam represented in the book, two that I did a million years ago that I'd never done anything with, and then one that was done, like, you know, as I was meant to be turning the book in, like on the last business day of 2022. And one of the things Sam told me in that conversation, which I think is kind of spicy for people who get the space, is that when they made FTT, you know, there was a giant set aside for the creators, like there is for all new tokens. But all of that set aside always belonged to Alameda, not FTX. I think most of us assumed that the FTT set aside was for FTX, that FTX would own it. But Sam told me, no, that was always earmarked for Alameda. It was, as he put it to me, and this is quoted in the book, their payment for letting a bunch of the executives, you know, check out for a while to build FTX because, you know, Gary and Sam had worked. And I think, yeah, Nishad would have been there too, had worked at Alameda before they had the idea for FTX. So to me, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, what the implications of it are, I mean, I guess the main implication is that, you know, Alameda was always built on basically a meme coin. Sad stuff. Tell me a little bit about like producing the book itself. Seems like there was like a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of voices. Probably be sort of hard to determine who's the best source here. Was it mostly built on interviews with Sam and like his co-founders? Or did you find a lot of sources out there in crypto media that were helpful? I mean, most of the story, I don't want to pretend like the book has a bunch of like brand new information in it. What the value of the book, I think, is putting together the whole story of Sam in one place and then also unpacking and I think pretty interesting and compelling and sometimes controversial voicey sort of ways, the way the industry works and how Sam's place in it fits into all of that. So most of the sources were previous reporting that folks have done. I mean, honestly, a ton of it was my own reporting. You know, I, I felt weird sort of citing my own like old coin dust stories a million times throughout the thing, but they were relevant. But then, yeah, I also talked to Sam. I talked to one woman he used to work with early on. I talked to uh, one or two people who used to work there. One thing I found is that late last year, folks who had worked at FDX and Alameda really didn't want to talk about it. I got one guy hitting me up in Telegram offering to talk to me about it if I paid him. But I was just like, no, man, I'm not going to do that. I don't really know who that was. I don't even know if it was real. So yeah, it was mostly, it's mostly built on existing sources and just sort of putting it all together for folks. It's also built on one fabulous episode of The Hash on Coindesk TV that featured Sam Bankman-Fried himself. We get a shout out in the book, which is pretty cool. This was famously right after the Super Bowl in which they had the big Larry David commercial. I want you to unpack why that's a representative detail in what may have been the undoing of Sam in his infatuation with sort of hobnobbing with folks and being seen as a celebrity. You sort of assert that that was a bit of a problem and kind of led to the demise. Can you just unpack that thesis that, uh, that is wound into the book? Sure. This is a big argument I make in the book. And, and I remember the day that FTX announced its Miami Heat deal. And maybe I said it in the Coindesk Slack at the time. I mean, that's the only place I, I would have said it. I wouldn't have said it publicly, but I was just like, I feel weird about this. I argue that Sam got kind of obsessed with being famous. He got obsessed with celebrity. I think it was, I do think Sam wanted to do good in the world, but I also think he really wanted people to know he was doing good. And the bigger they got and the more attention that he got, the more excited I think he got about it. So it was very important, I think, for him to tell you guys that like he hadn't seen the Super Bowl ad because he'd been watching it at the Super Bowl in the famous person box. You know, I think that stuff sort of like caused Sam to get sort of warped. Okay, and lastly, you've sat with this story for, for so long. You know, the three of us, we have to switch our time and attention to so many different stories throughout the day. What's the biggest lesson you think that the industry can take away from FTX's story? 
Not your keys, not your crypto, man. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the oldest lesson of crypto is still right. I mean, that's what the Sam story illustrates. You know, normies point to the Sam story and they're like, look, this shows what's wrong with crypto. And it's like, no, this the Sam story shows what's always been wrong with, you know, trusting your assets to a stranger. So the biggest lesson is the first lesson of crypto. Like, don't trust, verify. Okay, Brady, I got one last question for you and I want your spiciest take. Did your opinion of SBF change and how did it change over the time of writing this book? Uh, It didn't change over the time of writing the book. It changed as FTX fell apart. I thought everyone kind of misunderstood Sam. I thought that all along. I thought they just didn't get the effective altruism thing and how that motivated him. But I also didn't think he was so crazy that he would put everything at risk like this. Uh, It's when it all blew up that my opinion of him really changed because this just seemed like horribly negligent. One last other random thing I want to say about the book is just I discovered this weekend that my acknowledgments disappeared from the print version. So there was supposed to be a shout out for Zach in there because he was the first person I talked to when I got offered the deal or like one of the first three people. And then somehow those pages just got lost before it went to print. So anyway, thank you, Zach, for being the person who's added me the most in the world and for talking to me about this book. And uh, yeah, so at least that acknowledgement is here. And sorry to all the other people I thanked too that aren't in there. Dude, that's amazing. Thank you. You're very kind to do that, to get that on the record. I very much appreciate it. That's Brady Dale. He just wrote SBF, how the FTX bankruptcy unwound. Crypto's very good. Bad guy, for real. She's coming out tomorrow. Check it out. Good stuff in there. And that's it for the show today. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jen Sinassi. We got Will Foxley. We're The Hash. We're on Coindesk TV. We're also on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Check us out in books now and in the future. That's <laughs> We're it. everywhere. We We're should inscribe everywhere. Brady's book. <laughs> one Let's day. Do it. One day. That's it. See y'all <laughs> later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.